Last week, in Chimera Within the Ambit, we covered chapters 7, 8, and most of chapter 9. Because we didn't get all through all of chapter 9, we're going to rewind a few pages from where we left off before we finish up the chapter. But in case you missed all of last week's reading, here's what happened. Since coming to the underground world of the outside, Britt has taken up farming above ground for resources, a job that not many people, let alone women, are willing to do because of the reptile-like creatures that roam above ground in the city formerly known as Chicago, hunting and eating humans. Britt comes face to face with the monitors and finds an unusual prize, a monitor's tooth, on her first mission out with Sale, her trainer and partner. When she returns to the outside, she finds that the tooth has earned her more attention and credit than she expected and is asked to join a team of researchers looking for answers about where and how the monitors came to exist. Britt agrees to join the team in search of the Cinder Dragon, the largest and only female monitor dragon, thought to be the monitor's queen and mother, in exchange for protection for her and Seth. In addition, she demands that Zale be allowed to go with her. Rutherford, a mysterious character with ties to the invisible puppeteers who run the outside, reluctantly agrees as long as they're able to return with a vial of the Cinder Dragon's blood. After weeks of training, the Blood Mission crew, who consists of Britt, Zale, Rutherford's know-it-all son, Buckley, a young and brilliant scientist named Fairchild, and Gunner, who serves as their bodyguard, leave to travel to the other side of the city in search of the Monitor's nest. Almost immediately after settling into their destination, Things go awry, and the team find themselves cornered, injured, and missing one of their crew members, Buckley, in the midst of a massive battle with multiple monitors. When the team is almost completely out of ammo and options, Britt prays for a way out, and from seemingly nowhere, the Cinder Dragon appears. To their surprise, the Cinder Dragon does not attack them. Instead, she seems to claim them as territory, acting as though she means them no harm. But when Gunner reaches for a gun to defend himself, Cinder allows the hungry monitors to attack and kill him. When Cinder chooses the same fate for Fairchild, who is unarmed but seriously injured, Britt and Zale plead with her to protect them. And almost as though she understands their request, the Cinder Dragon wards off the other monitors. Then, in an odd twist, Cinder in injures herself and proceeds to bleed over Fairchild, who's almost completely blacked out from blood loss. Then, without explanation, the cinder dragon disappears and leaves the three of them alive, but alone, and completely confused. Tonight we'll finish chapter 9, then go on to read chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. I know that sounds like a lot, but these chapters move fast. Think you can keep up? Because here we go. <laughs> this is the conclusion of Chimera Within the Ambit, Chapter 9, Mission Log, Day 1. We had very little light to see, so we opted to leave our tree hammocks behind and find closer shelter for rest and recovery. We chose a building full of apartments, floor upon floor of them. We managed to carry a completely unconscious Fairchild and our belongings to the fourth floor of the building. We chose a room with a view of the surrounding area for our hideout. We wanted to be as far away from the ground as we could get so as to avoid any more surprises. We needed to collect ourselves and start again, this time two men down. Gunner was dead, and Buckley was MIA. 
We hoped that when Fairchild regained consciousness, she might be able to shed some light on where Buckley disappeared to, but until then we had no choice but to sit and wait. The condition of the hideout was shabby at best, but it offered us two rooms, one with a bed where we laid Fairchild. I used clean water from our remaining bottles to clean her and her wounds. I was surprised to see that the bleeding had almost stopped completely when I removed the straps from my satchel that I had applied earlier. As I washed away the blood on her face and in her hair, I thought of how our bounty for this mission was now dried on poor Fairchild's body. I was sitting here with the cinder dragon's blood dried on me, and I knew that that would not serve our mission's purpose. We were so close to getting what we needed, and now we had no choice but to turn back. Survival was our mission now. I dressed her wound with a clean smock that I had tucked in my bag. I then reattached the bloody straps back onto my satchel so that I could carry it over my shoulder once again. Fairchild moaned and tossed her head from side to side. She must have been reliving it all, her face twisted with anguish and fear. No, I don't want to, no, Fairchild moaned. A tear came to my eye to think of how her mind had her trapped. I stroked her hair off of her forehead and whispered to her, Shh, it's okay, it's okay. Fairchild rustled for a few more seconds and then returned to her comatose state. I stood up and left her to rest. I closed the door behind me as I stepped into the main part of the living quarters. We had a few flashlights to use inside the dimly lit residence, but Zale felt we should reserve them. I was grateful that the moon shone bright enough to get us some natural light through the windows. While I tended to Fairchild, Zale started a small fire in the fireplace in the main part of the apartment. The warmth of it was refreshing. Zale sat with his back to me facing the fire. He was reloading the guns we'd retrieved from the vehicle after the confrontation with Cinder. Buckley better show by daylight or we're leaving him here, Zale said begrudgingly. We have to start back tomorrow. I'll give Buckley till then. I wasn't sure if Zale was talking to me or himself. He didn't look up at me. I could tell he was furious with the results of the day. I was too, so I didn't say anything. I crossed the room behind him. Zale continued, What was that? I don't get it. I didn't respond. I, I retrieved some water from my satchel to clean up with. I didn't have a towel or cloth, so I removed my overshirt, wet it down, and wiped my face. I couldn't help but cry quietly as I cleaned up. I was so emotionally and physically exhausted, I couldn't even begin to think about what Zale was questioning. He didn't notice me. I found myself in a mirror on the wall in the main room. I welcomed the dark because I had no desire to see my reflection clearly. I worried that it would accurately depict my desperation and overwhelming stress. My hands trembled as I reached up to my face with the damp shirt and wiped away blood and dirt. I hyper-focused on a stain of blood on my cheek. I wanted it off of my skin. I convinced myself that I could smell death on me and it made me nauseous. I knew the blood wasn't my own and the thought of its true owner made me shiver. As I stared in the mirror, my mind started racing with memories of the same thought that had mystified me only weeks prior. The day I found the tooth, I had blood on me and didn't know the source. My mind flashed back to the images of my reflection with the blood stains on my face and blue smock. In the weeks since, I had tried to remember what had happened while I was on my farming mission that day, but I couldn't remember anything beyond getting hit in the head with something and blacking out. A flash came to me of the cinder dragon's tail showering Fairchild with blood. I reached up and felt my head, where the blood stain was on my own skull just weeks before. I thought hard and long, trying to piece it together. 
Behind me, Zale sat by the fire, cursing Buckley's absence, Fairchild's wound, and Gunner's death. He seemed like he was trying to piece it together, too. Suddenly, a burst of energy shot through my body, and I rushed back to the room where Fairchild was sleeping. Zale took notice and followed me. Brit? I hurried to the side of Fairchild's bed and quickly started unraveling the dressings on her wounds that I had just set in place. What are you doing? Zale asked, confused. When I finished unwrapping them, I smiled to myself. My inclination was right. Look! He came alongside of me and looked down on Fairchild. He gasped. I don't understand. That's not possible. It is possible. I've seen it myself. This is why they sent us here. This is what we're here for. I marveled at Fairchild's missing wounds for a second longer before saying aloud, Something's in her blood. The cinder dragon's blood heals. Zale and I paced quietly in the main room of the hideout. We passed each other as we alternated back and forth on a path that I was sure we would burn into the floor. We were furiously working our tired minds to put the pieces together. Finally, Zale broke the silence. Okay, so Cinder healed her, but why would she do that? I don't know. Why didn't she save Gunner? I asked. I don't know that she wanted to save Gunner. I think maybe she wanted him to be killed, he replied. But why? That seemed so unfair to me. Because he reached for his gun? Maybe. But then why was Cinder going to let them kill Fairchild? She didn't have a gun. I was so confused. Well, we don't know that she was going to let them kill, kill her, do we? Zale answered. We passed each other again. I stopped and thought for a second and then continued pacing. Let's start at the beginning. What do we know about monitors? I asked. We know that they hunt at night. They're fast. They can jump. They're all males except for Cinder. Zale thought about it, then continued. And she's the only one that we've seen fly. Right. What I can't figure out is, why didn't she eat us herself? Has anyone ever seen her hunt or eat humans? Continuing my train of thought, I added, Doesn't it seem odd that if she wanted Gunner dead that she didn't just eat him herself? Or the other monitor, she could have easily killed it, but she didn't. If she doesn't hunt humans, that would explain why we see her so rarely. I've only heard of sightings near us on a few occasions. The last one was when you... Zale stopped in his path and looked at me. I finished his statement. When I found the tooth, she was there. Remember how I, when I was bleeding but didn't know why? Zale nodded as he came to the same conclusion I had. She healed you. Zale squinted as he processed that. But why would she do that? That just doesn't make sense. We heard a noise come from the next room. Fairchild was having another nightmare. She squealed in her sleep, but we couldn't make out what she was saying. When she wakes, we can ask her if any of this makes sense. She must know more about Cinder than we think, I said. I sat down on the floor in front of the fire. Energy had been restored to me temporarily by the theories we pondered, but my body was still tired. Zale sat down next to me. When Cinder came face to face with you, Zale started, and then he paused and turned his attention to the popping fire. He started again. There's one more thing. What? When Cinder came face to face with me, he paused to swallow a gulp of hesitancy. I don't know. It was weird, like I knew she wasn't going to hurt me. It was almost as though I could feel her. I know that sounds crazy, but it felt like an eternity passed when she stared me down. And in that time, I just got this feeling that 
that she recognized me. Zell looked at me to see if I was listening. I definitely was. I knew exactly what he was referring to. I nodded slowly, trying to understand why we would have felt that way. It felt like I already knew her, and she knew me, I added to his thought. Yes, exactly, Zale exclaimed. But how? We both went silent, and the moment slipped by us. I laid my head on his shoulder and closed my eyes. I reran the scenarios in my head, trying to make sense of it all, but my body and mind gave in to exhaustion, and I almost dozed off when the silence was broken between us when he asked, Who's Isla? The mere mention of her name woke me completely. I lifted my head off his shoulder to study his face. Isla? Yes, he said, turning to look at me. I noticed the genuine curiosity in his eyes. I considered lying. I considered denying that I knew who he was talking about. Where had he heard her name? Eventually, I stood up and stretched. I walked over to the table where I'd placed my satchel. I recovered the Bible from it, and before turning around to face Zale again, I closed my eyes and clutched it at my chest. I hadn't spoken of Isla with anyone but Seth since leaving the ambit. I knew that explaining even the smallest part of my past to Zale would be opening myself up to sincere vulnerability. I took a minute to be sure I was prepared to trust him with the details from my life before the outside. Up until now, I'd refused to tell anyone anything. I turned around, still clutching the Bible at my chest. I leaned up against the table behind me. I hesitated to walk across the room with my treasured cargo. Isla is my daughter. I pulled the picture of her and me from the inside of the Bible and gazed at it. Zale stood up and approached me. Why do you ask? How do you know her name? He smiled. You said it in your sleep. I thought back to that morning, which seemed like days ago. I remembered the hammock that we had shared. I didn't realize that I talked in my sleep, I smirked, embarrassed. No one's ever told me that before. Well, how many bedmates do you have? Zale teased. I felt blood rush to my face. Oh, none, I blurted. I just meant I stopped talking for fear of humiliating myself further. Zale continued to close in on me. He seemed amused with my girlish blushing. He reached for the picture of Isla in my hand and asked, Can I see? I swallowed my fear and handed him the picture, still holding the Bible with the other hand against my chest. Zale examined the picture. She looks like her mother. I smiled tearfully. Where is she? In the ambit with her grandfather. I sobered to think of it. I reached out to retrieve the picture from his hand, but as I did so, Zale took my extended hand in his. And what about this? He asked as his fingers smoothed over the band on my left ring finger. Is he in the ambit too? I'd almost forgotten that my wedding band was on. I remembered refusing to remove it before the first farming mission. No, I said sadly. I blinked and then took my hand back without the picture. I'm sorry, did I upset you? No, I reassured him. You just reminded me. Zale's eyes dropped to the picture again. You just reminded me why I'm here, I finished. Zale looked up again and then extended his hand to return the photograph to me. Why are you here, Britt? Why? I thought about how to answer his question. Because I'll do whatever I can to get her back. But until then, I have to protect her the best I can from a distance. I have to protect them both. 
She and Seth are all I have left. A tear jumped from one of my eyes. I wiped it away quickly. I'm sorry, I apologized, worried that Zale would be annoyed with my sob story. Don't be, he said kindly, washing away the awkwardness. <laughs> so, I talk in my sleep, huh? Yep, and Isla isn't the only one you dream about, apparently. He was teasing me, but I sort of panicked to think of all the other things I may have discussed while unconscious. I said more? Yeah, Zale was being coy with me. Oh, no, what else did I say? I smiled. I only noticed because it felt so foreign to my face. Well, I don't want to embarrass you, but I think you might have a little crush. A crush? What did I say? You were talking about Buckley. He smiled. He teased. I was? I was shocked at the idea of it. Of all the things I could have been talking about in my sleep, I certainly wouldn't have expected Buckley to come up. Oh, what? Zale taunted me. You aren't a fan of Buckley? You sure seem to be in your sleep. I scowled at him. He moaned and mocked me. Oh, Buckley? Buckley? Stop it, I laughed. What's wrong with you? He continued. Kiss me, Buckley. Oh, Buckley! I pushed him playfully to stop. It felt refreshing to laugh. I teased him back. Oh, yeah? Well, what about you and little Miss Fairchild in there? Are you cold? I mocked his flirting in the hammock with her. Oh, come on, she's not my type, he laughed. Oh, yeah, too smart, huh? No, she's too nice. Too nice, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, Zell came closer. You're right, I can't help but be drawn to the stubborn, mean ones. He stopped in front of me, pinning me between him and the table. Oh, I swallowed. I felt my face go flush with blood. I understood his meaning now. He was going to kiss me. He was actually going to do it. And Britt, Zale whispered, you weren't talking about Buckley in your sleep. I exhaled a sigh of relief and smiled at him. He wasn't going to kiss me. He was just teasing me. I knew it, I said, patting him playfully on his chest. It was my name you were calling out. He was serious, staring directly into me. I swallowed again. I knew his accusations of yearning for him in my sleep were true because as soon as he said it, I remembered my dream of him. I felt the blood rush into my cheeks. I was no longer embarrassed. I was excited that he might kiss me. I wondered what it would feel like. I took in a slow breath. He waited. Are you okay? He asked. I, I think so. He reached up and took the, the Bible and photo out of my hands at my chest. He set them down on the cupboard next to me. As he leaned to put the items on the cupboard, I could feel his breath cross my lips. His hand found my face. He cupped my jaw and pulled my chin upward toward him. With the emotions of the day, I was overwhelmed. My thoughts ran to the last kiss I had ever received, a goodbye kiss from James. I thought of how allowing Zale to kiss me now would be allowing James's kiss on my lips to be lost forever. I hated the thought of that. But I wanted Zale to kiss me because he was the first man since James that I had desired. With that notion, I looked up at him. I bit my lips so as to signal him. He pulled me into him, and my eyes went closed. Exhilaration flooded my thoughts and senses. I leaned into him for more, letting him know that I wanted him. Chapter 10 Mission Log Day 2 Read to yourselves. Raise your hands when you're done reading. 
Chapter 10, Mission Log, Day 2. I had taken advantage of him. I had used him to escape and feel something other than fear. It didn't mean anything to me or him. It was just two adults caught up in the moment, and it meant nothing. I replayed this thought in my head. My mind's eye replayed the images of our closeness. But as the endorphins tried to release ecstasy into my rushing blood, I recalled the lies that I told myself. It meant nothing. He was there, and I had used him to escape the chaos that surrounded us. I had used him. He hadn't used me. I wanted it. I didn't want him. Over and over again, I tried to convince myself. I trained my head to take over my body. I severed the ties of my heart to my head. I had used him. It meant nothing. I was surprised at how much energy and concentration it took to control my thoughts and emotions. I needed to focus on the task at hand. Finally, with that thought, I snapped out of my daze and the conversation that had ensued around me became audible once more. I don't know. He just left us there, Fairchild explained. Did he say where he was going? Zale interrogated her about Buckley's disappearance. I studied Zale's face. He looked at Fairchild only and he was listening intently. He didn't even seem to notice that I'd zoned out and was thinking about another subject entirely. I told myself that it was because it meant nothing. Remember, it meant nothing to you or him. I struggled to clear my mind again and focus on Fairchild. Fairchild's face was pale naturally, but today it had more color than I'd ever seen. She seemed to be glowing. I could tell that she had worked at cleaning herself up some since she'd woken. Her hair looked shiny and clean, and the blood that had once made her hair a dark red was now gone. Her natural auburn hair was glistening. The poor girl had been fighting back tears all morning. I wished for a moment that her innocence had been spared in all of this. I wished her outlook matched the glowing radiance of her skin and hair, but her green eyes were blank as she searched her memory for clues of where Buckley may have gone. I don't remember, Fairchild said nervously. She seemed afraid to disappoint Zale. Zale was visibly upset, but I knew enough of his body language to know it wasn't Fairchild that he was upset with. He was trying hard to conceal his anger when speaking with her because it was Buckley that he was mad at. Zale's focus turned to me. Well, what do you think? I was taken off guard by his attention to me. Um, I said, trying to hide my confusion. I don't know, what do you think? I think I'd like to forget Buckley and hightail it back to the outside, Zale grunted somewhat sarcastically. Fairchild whimpered at the thought of leading, leaving Buckley to fend for himself. But, I questioned, recognizing Zale's leading statement. But I don't think we can go back without finding out what happened to him, Zale murmured begrudgingly. Fairchild let out a sigh of relief. Zale searched my face for an objection to this thought, but I didn't say anything. I agreed. Leaving without an explanation of what happened to Buckley wasn't an option. Realizing that I wasn't going to give him the objection he desired, Zale continued reluctantly. I guess we have to figure out what happened to the stupid idiot, if he got himself eaten or not, before we can go back. And with that, Zale stood up from the table and started to collect his belongings, mumbling, How do we find out if he was dinner last night or not? I sure as heck don't know. They probably polished off every last square inch of the gamey little coward. Fairchild and I exchanged looks as he continued stomping around the room, packing up the necessities. We both kept silent as we stood up and gathered our things. There were only a few hours of darkness left before we would need to lie low again, and time was wasting. We cautiously crossed the street that sprawled out in front of our hideout. We ducked behind corners and walls to carefully trace our way back toward the vehicles where we, that we had abandoned the night before. 
Zale and I carried weapons while Fairchild stayed in between the two of us. No one said anything. We traveled quietly and cautiously, allowing Zale to signal us with hand gestures. Within fifteen minutes, we found ourselves back near the tree where we had slept less than twenty-four hours prior. The second vehicle was exactly where we'd left it. Zale quickly examined its condition while Fairchild and I sipped and kept an eye out. I think we were all disappointed to find that Buckley was not in the hammocks of the tree. We hoped that he would have been there waiting for us when we came back so that we could return to the outside. Fairchild, you know Buckley better than us. Where do you think he would have gone? I whispered to her as I watched her trembling hand lift her water bottle to her lips. I really don't know, she answered quietly. Look, I'm not a huge fan of Buckley either, but it seems strange that he would have just run away. I mean, I just don't think he would have left you there. Fairchild's eyes welled up and she nodded her head in agreement. Her chin quivered. I reached out my hand and placed it on her shoulder. I didn't seem to be telling her anything she hadn't already thought of. He may be a jerk sometimes, Britt. She sniffed back tears and whispered, but he isn't a coward. I thought about that for a moment. Fairchild continued, he must have found something or seen something or her thought trailed off. She shook her head out of frustration. I don't know what, but I don't think he knew that I was, I mean, I don't think he knew that we were in trouble. I'll be right back, okay? I told her. She nodded. I walked around the other side of the vehicle to where Zale was kneeling, pulling out ammo from the, from the green case and loading it in our various weapons. I knelt down next to him, talking quietly. I think we should go back. I know. I do too, but we can't until we know for sure that Buckley's dead, he replied without looking up. No, I mean, I think we should go back to where everything happened last night. He looked up at me with confusion. Why? I just have a feeling that Buckley's there or near there or something. I think it's worth checking out, don't you? He argued. I don't know if Fairchild's up for going back over there. She's a wreck already and there's no telling how she might react. And it was crawling with monitors. I know, but I just need you to trust me. I think there's something over there. Think about it. If Buckley was scared, why would he leave Gunner's side? Because he's dumb, Zale piped in. I'm serious, Zale. Buckley wouldn't have left Fairchild in danger. Zale rolled his eyes. I think you're giving the kid more credit than he deserves. He probably saw something shiny and went toward it. I don't think you're giving him enough credit. Look, on the way driving here, all Buckley could talk about was Fairchild and how they used to be engaged. I think he still cares for her. He wouldn't have just left her for nothing. Zale looked up at the sky and let out a sigh. Okay, let's check it out, but we have to move fast. We don't have much time left until sunrise. Freshly armed and hydrated, we loaded ourselves into the vehicle and made our way back toward where we'd last seen Buckley. Zale pulled up alongside the other vehicle and parked. He inspected our surroundings carefully and then signaled us to join him outside of the vehicle. The sky started to lighten somewhat, and while we'd only been there hours earlier, the scenery already looked very different. I hadn't noticed the tall buildings that were half-standing, the broken windows and open doors. Fairchild walked cautiously around the rubble, searching for signs of Buckley. She pointed to something about twenty feet away and with a burst of energy started running toward it. There! she yelled. Zale and I took off after her, trying to catch up. Fairchild, wait! Zale yelled at her. She didn't listen. She was focused on whatever had caught her eye. Finally, she stopped and stared down at the ground below her. Zale caught up to her first, stopping alongside of her. My heart sank. They weren't doing anything. 
I knew that if it was Buckley, he must have been dead or they would have been trying to help him. I finally caught up to them. What is it? I asked. Zale knelt down and reached out to retrieve the object that sat in the dirt. He picked it up and examined it. The gun was covered in blood. Zale smoothed his hand over it to wipe it clean enough to read. The name Gunner was etched in the side of it. It was Gunner's, not Buckley's. Zale stood back up. He opened the clip on the weapon to review a few remaining bullets. He shoved the clip back in and then stuck the barrel of the gun into his belt. Fairchild exhaled a breath and then resumed her search without a word. I studied the ground with my flashlight. The ground was covered with dust and soot and burnt debris. In all of the black dust, anything with color stood out. I looked up at the buildings and forced myself to remember what had happened there the night before. None of us had mentioned the cinder dragon in our discovery of her healing blood. We had to find Buckley first. But for a moment, I allowed myself to remember Cinder and the strange happenings of the hours before. I still couldn't shake the feeling that I recognized her. The beautiful woman on the advertisement billboard above us still smiled down on us. I noticed Fairchild intentionally avoiding looking up at her. My mind wandered for a moment, and I imagined what the city formerly known as Chicago must have looked like over 30 years ago before the crisis. I envisioned cars driving down the streets, lights blinking, and the noise of music filling the air. I pictured it looking like the books I had read, men wearing top hats and dark suits, and ladies wearing dresses, strings of pearls, and high heels. I imagined children playing in the streets and dogs barking. I closed my eyes and lived in that moment in my imagination. When I opened my eyes, I looked with a new perspective at the architecture of the buildings around me. Life had once existed here. Where was it now? Fairchild, why did we come to this part of Chicago for the blood mission? I asked. This is where we suspected the monitor's nest might be, she answered confidently. So we figured it was our best shot at finding Cinder. She smirked at the thought. I guess we were right. It was nice to see her smile, even a little. But how did they know that this is where the nest was? I asked. Oh, yeah, because this is where the first ever recorded monitor sighting was she answered. I felt a chill run up and down my spine. Again, I surveyed the area around me, envisioning noise and activity and life. Then I envisioned a monitor ruining it. This is where it all began. Is there anything about this part of Chicago that's different from the other parts? I inquired further. What do you mean? Well, why do you think the first monitor showed up here? Where would it have come from? Why would it have shown up here instead of anywhere else? I asked. Oh, well, we don't know that yet. I've been wondering that for a long time, too, but we haven't been able to find any reason for it. I spotted a sliver of white on the outside of one of the buildings and approached it with my flashlight for a closer look. I could make out a few letters, but only after I wiped away the dust and soot could I read the rest. The word was bright red and had an arrow pointing to the right of the sign. Emergency. Emergency, I said aloud. Fairchild approached me from behind, as did Zale. We were all quiet. Maybe the emergency was the mill disease, and this is where people came after it, Zale speculated. Close, Fairchild said matter-of-factly. Well, what does it mean, then? Zale asked. I answered, looking up at the structure in front of me. Emergency room. This is a hospital. Chapter 11. Emergency. Emergency felt like such an appropriate word. 
I looked at Fairchild and Zale's faces as we all tried to comprehend the building's significance to our quest. I could guess that we all had the same notion as to what our next move should be, but Zale was the first to say it. This way, he said, walking in the direction the red arrow on the emergency sign was pointing. Fairchild didn't hesitate to follow him. I didn't either. We made our way along the outer wall, climbing over rubble and moving debris out of our path. We scanned the area for our next indicator of where to go. Knowing now what the building was, I found myself with a clearer idea of what the hospital must have looked like over three decades ago, when I was sure it was last cared for. It was the windows that set the building apart from the others. The hospital must have had a lot of natural light for its patients. Zale searched the outer walls of the hospital in a strategic fashion, looking for more signs. He ran his hand along the surfaces of any place that seemed fitting. Finally, his search paid off, and he located one. As Fairchild and I closed in on Zale and his discovery, confusion turned to triumph, and then back to confusion. The words on the sign read, Memorial Hospital, but that's not what confused us. What confused us was that it was already visible. Unlike the emergency sign we had discovered, this sign was uncovered, and it was obvious that a human hand had wiped it clean. Someone else had cleaned it off and read it before us, someone who was on the same track that we were now, someone on our mission, Buckley. Fairchild gasped at the realization that another human had recently stood in this spot reading this sign like we were now. We felt confident that we were the only living souls with hands and the ability to read out here. That meant our missing crew member was not only alive, but that Buckley was indeed onto something that steered him away from the rest of the team. Buckley, Fairchild whispered under her breath. She seemed relieved, assuming that Buckley had not run out of fear as Zale would have liked her to believe. He must have discovered the hospital sign and trudged off without us out of curiosity and duty to the mission. Well, if it is Buckley's handprint, then he can't be too far from us now, Zale stated. He must have come back after we left. He must think we left him, Fairchild worried. No, he probably knows what happened. He's just lying low now, Zale said. Let's go. Zale started moving, shifting piles of rocks and rubble out of the way of the door to the hospital. Fairchild's visible relief and refreshed energy was noticeable. She practically stepped on Zale's heels, helping him move the debris. I took another look at the sign. While I was happy to see the hand swipe of clarity on it, something struck me as odd. I squinted, wiping my eyes with my dirty hands to clean them of the smoke and dust that had been agitating them. I turned my head to the side and studied the sign again. I stepped closer to it, and with my own hand this time, I wiped away the remaining layers of dirt to reveal the sign in its entirety. As I suspected, there was something that we had missed on it. It didn't just read Memorial Hospital. It read Children's Memorial Hospital. Zale and Fairchild had almost completely cleared the door of clutter and were starting to pull it open now. Fairchild asked Zale, Do you think Buckley went this way? I don't think he could have gotten through this door if we can't. Children's Memorial Hospital, I thought. Zale replied, Don't know, but this is the easiest way in. Wait, I said. Look. I motioned them to the completely clear sign that read Children's Memorial Hospital. Okay, so, Zale answered. Oh, Fairchild said, well, that would make sense. What would make sense, Zale asked. I pondered her meaning, too, when a tremendous crash shook the ground. Fairchild let out a shrill squeal and then clamped her hands over her own mouth. Zale took aim with his shotgun and scanned our surroundings. I did the same, stepping in front of Fairchild. Follow me, Zale whispered, 
as he quietly tiptoed over the remaining rubble and then nodded to us, gesturing for us to enter through the door to the hospital. Get inside. I entered first, then Fairchild, and Zale. Once inside, Zale hid around the corner of the door to watch outside for movement. Fairchild and I stood behind him with our backs against the wall. Inside the building, my lungs filled with the dust that we had unsettled with our movements. I focused on the interior of the hallway. It gave me the creeps. There was no way of knowing what threats would be waiting for us there. My flashlight barely lit enough for us to see in the darkness of night and the shadows of the hallway we took shelter in. I scanned the walls looking for the next place that we could escape to. The walls are black, I whispered to Zale. He didn't respond. He turned his flashlight to the walls and joined his light with mine. Now, with both lights illuminating together, we could see that it wasn't the darkness that made the walls black. It was that they were charred from top to bottom. It looked like a fire had swept through the hospital hallways, scorching them, but did not burn long enough to weaken the structure. A fire breather was here, Zale whispered. I instantly regretted my suggestion to return to this place in search of Buckley. I'd led us directly into the belly of the beast, with no escape now. We didn't have a choice but to continue into the interior of the hospital. At this point, our chances were better inside than out in the open. Another rustling sound came from outside the hospital doors. All three of us flattened ourselves against the walls to blend in. A shadow fluttered across the door window. Let's move. Zell motioned to the charred door frame about five feet down the hall. He wanted me to go first. I swallowed and then quickly slipped across and down the hall. I peeked around the corner of the doorway to scout out our, our escape. There was nothing in the room but more black walls. I showered the room with what little light I had to offer it as I waved to Fairchild to join me. She obeyed. In the room, there were objects that looked like they had once been chairs and tables. They were charred like the walls. It was like a firestorm had rained down on the room and then stopped before completely disintegrating the matter in its path. The room was large and open. Fairchild and I stepped through the room, dodging the obstacles in our path, working our way to the other side. We were so careful and quiet, and yet I'd failed to realize that the entire outer wall of the room had once been made up completely of windows. The glass was no longer there, just open holes in the wall. And on the other side of it, an enormous monitor watched our every careful, quiet step. Fairchild screamed at the sight of the beast. Zale nearly tripped as he hurried around the corner and stopped in his tracks next to us. He cussed. Fairchild and I froze in the monitor's gaze for what seemed like minutes. My flashlight trembled in my hand as the ball of light that, that it provided centered on the eye of the monster. I didn't move. I just waited for the beast to jump on me. Zale opened fire and unloaded his shotgun, which seemed to do nothing more than stun the monitor. When the noise and vibration from Zale's shot ceased, I realized he'd been yelling at Fairchild and I to move, but we both stood like stone statues. My mind told my feet to move, but they didn't answer. I was waiting for the consequences of my feet's insubordination. Fairchild must have been able to break the monster's trance on her because she turned and bolted to a door on the other side of the room. In the process, her boot slipped off. She ran a few more steps and then turned, in a panic, to retrieve it. Forget your stupid shoes, Elle yelled at her. I can't. I need it, she yelled, and then screamed at me. Britt, come on! Sale's shouts overcame hers. Britt, move! I stared at the beast. He stared back at me. His long, pink tongue slithered in and out of his enormous jaws. 
He began pacing like a hungry lion back and forth on the other side of the wall of windows. If I hadn't seen Zale's shots hit him directly, I would have almost been convinced that there was a sort of force field holding him back from launching at me. A hand grabbed, grabbed mine and jerked my body to follow it. My feet unlocked, but my eyes did not. Even as my body obeyed instinctively, I stared back at the monitor that had yet to pounce on me. My flashlight in hand at my side, the darkness and shock consumed me and my surroundings. My mind's eye saw everything in slow motion. Zale pulled me through hallways and rooms of black charred walls. I just followed, lost in thought and fear. Behind us, I heard nothing. We kept moving from room to room, hall to hall, looking for an exit. Fairchild burst through the door to the stairwell and started climbing the stairs in front of Zale, who still held my hand and pulled me with him. I kept up, but he still held me at his side. I didn't try to free my hand from his. I had no choice but to trust him because my own body wanted to betray me. After climbing stair after stair, Fairchild stopped on the landing of the top floor. We all panted from exhaustion, but she pointed to a sign on the door. I flickered my flashlight to the spot that read, Floor 6. Fairchild tried to utter words between breaths. Buckley, she said, motioning to the sign, which had been visibly cleared with a sweeping hand, just like the other. Zale looked to me as if I had any idea of what to do next. He leaned over the stair rail to see if there was anything in the stairwell behind us. He released my hand, and with one hand on each of my shoulders, he shoved my back against the wall. He focused his eyes to meet mine. Are you okay? he asked, still panting from the climb. Returning his gaze cleared my head. I nodded. With that, he let go and turned to Fairchild. Stay here. I'll be right back. She nodded. He took Gunner's gun from his belt loop and handed it to her. If you see anything coming up those stairs, move, but keep her with you, he ordered, gesturing to me. Fairchild swallowed a gulp of fear and said, Okay. Zale threw open the door to floor six and disappeared through it. Fairchild leaned over the railing of the stairwell, checking the lower floors to see if anything was closing in. She then joined me as I slid down to sit, leaning up against the wall. She put her boot back on and tightened up the laces. That was crazy, she said, trying to fill the air between us. She pulled her water bottle from her satchel and gulped down a bunch of it. Then she offered it to me. I refused with a slight wave of my hand. I was still in shock of what had just taken place. I didn't understand why the monitor hadn't leapt at me, or toasted me, or released a hunting call, or, or something. It doesn't make sense, I whispered. Fairchild stopped drinking and turned her attention to me as though I had more to say. I know. Everything we've ever been taught is, if you come that close to one, you won't live to tell about it, she responded. I guess we were wrong about them. She was right. We had been so wrong about them. I studied her face from the side. I was inspired by her sudden bravery and how she'd stepped up when I had crumbled under pressure. I mean, look at this. She pulled at the bloody scraps of cloth that had once made up a shirt sleeve over her right shoulder. The jagged scar was the only evidence left of her near amputation. She flexed her right hand and arm to demonstrate its perfect recovery. How could we have ever known, she said in amazement. She sighed as she retrieved the vials from her satchel that we were meant to collect blood in. What else don't we know? We sat side by side, listening to our surroundings and rehydrating our tired minds processing the events. The minutes seemed to slip by, and while I welcomed the opportunity to rest safely, I began to worry about Zale. Where is he? I asked rhetorically. Fairchild checked her watch. He said he would be right back, but that was almost twenty minutes ago. 
Immediately a panicked thought crossed my mind. We would be in big trouble without Zale to escort us back to the vehicles and the outside. I cursed my own thoughts for implying that us gals would need a man to get us back safely, but then my mind eased in the realization that it wasn't that we needed a man to make us feel safe. I needed Zale to feel safe. This realization caused the endorphins to rush my body. I felt stronger and my sense of courage restored. The timing couldn't have been better for me to buck up because just then Fairchild and I both jumped from a noise on the other side of the floor six door. We leapt to our feet and I recovered my gun from its holster. I pushed Fairchild behind me and we got as close to the wall as we possibly could. I knew that it was likely that Zale was the noise approaching, but we had to be prepared for anything to pop out of the door. When the door burst open, we were relieved to see our missing crew member alive and well and returned to us. Not Zale, but Buckley. Buckley! Fairchild exclaimed as she threw her arms around his neck. What the? Buckley grunted. I couldn't tell what confused him more, finding the two of us in the stairwell or Fairchild's loving reaction to him. Where'd you come from? How'd you get up here? Fairchild dropped her arms from around his neck and stepped back, looking to me to explain what had happened. Didn't you see Zale in there? I asked, suddenly concerned. In where? In there? He motioned to floor six. I bolted past him, threw the door open, and entered. I looked both ways, left then right. I listened closely for noises and squinted to see if there was any light coming through any of the openings. Zale? I called out quietly. I searched both directions with my flashlight. Buckley and Fairchild stood behind me. I turned to Buckley. Which way did you come from? That way, Buckley motioned to the right. But he can't be up here, Britt. I've been up here for hours and haven't seen him. I started heading down the hall to the left, opposite of where Buckley had come from. Is there anything up here? Fairchild asked. Yeah, clean air, Buckley said sarcastically. For the first time since we'd climbed the stairs in the stairwell, I realized Buckley was right. I could deeply breathe the air without coughing or gagging. A subtle breeze seemed to be coming down the hall. It was a refreshing change from the heat and ash that the rest of the building seemed to be consumed with. We moved further down the corridor. Buckley didn't have a weapon drawn, but Fairchild and I did. You don't need those up here, he pointed out. I stopped and turned to look at him. What? I said you don't need to have those right now. There's nothing up here, Buckley rephrased condescendingly. Fairchild handed Gunner's gun to Buckley. Good. I don't want this thing anyway. Call me untrusting, but you also said Zale wasn't up here, and I know for a fact that he is, I said, continuing with my gun in hand. What were you doing up here? I heard Fairchild ask Buckley as we walked. Like I said, there's clean air up here. Since I was alone, I had to hold up somewhere, he answered. Hey, this is Gunner's gun. Where is he? Fairchild fell quiet. Britt, where's Gunner? he asked again. I continued on without stopping, but I answered. He's dead. What? What happened? Buckley sounded surprised. Zale's voice came from behind us. That's a long story. I turned around to see Zale standing in the end of the corridor we had just traversed. Without thinking, my body was drawn to his. I was almost running to him. Finally, when I was standing in his presence, an overwhelming urge filled my body and I obliged. I reached up and slapped him as hard as I could. Zale stretched his jaw from the blow and then smirked. Miss me? All right, so we'll stop there, and then we'll pick up with chapter 12. All right, <clears throat> chapter 12, floor 6. 
We spent the next several minutes explaining to Buckley the events of the hours since he'd been separated from the group. I don't think he would have believed us about the Cinder Dragon's blood healing Fairchild's severed arm if, he, if she hadn't been there to personally convince him. Buckley explained that he'd gone off to pee when he found the Memorial Hospital sign and ventured off to see what was inside the building. When we returned, when he returned, we were all gone, so he opted to hide out at the hospital. It turns out that he hadn't gotten much sleep because, he, because he'd spent much of the night searching the medical offices and supply rooms for resources to take back to the outside. This thought pleased Fairchild to the core. Buckley went on and on to her about the items he'd recovered and how he'd managed to survive alone for the, for the night. I can't pretend to understand Fairchild's sudden infatuation with Buckley and his story, but I did think it was sort of sweet how she relished his every word. Her fear for his safety must have changed her perspective of him and their relationship, and even in these extreme circumstances, it must have rekindled some feelings for him. I need to talk to you, Zale whispered in my ear from behind. He nodded for me to follow him. I turned to tell Fairchild and Buckley that we would return shortly, but they were in their own world. I just followed Zale instead. As he ducked into a side room, I felt nervousness cover me. I reminded myself that the intimate events that happened earlier meant nothing. I tried to the best of my exhausted ability to control my emotions. They were fluttering at the mere thought of being alone with Zale for the first time since. I told myself to pretend that I had no idea what he wanted to talk to me about. I told myself to play dumb and uninterested, but as it turned out, I really didn't know what he wanted to talk to me about. I wanted you to see this. He opened a door to one of the medical offices and tapped the small sign on the outside of the door. The sign read, Dr. A. Ladin, M.D. I shook my head because I failed to see the significance. Zale beamed as though it was an important discovery and I was supposed to know what it meant. You don't know who Alexander Ladin is? No, I said, confused. Zale seemed stunned by my answer. Who is it? I forget you're an ambit girl sometimes, Zale scoffed. Dr. Alexander Ladin was one of the original inventors of the mill immunization. I can't believe you didn't know that. Really? I said, turning my head to the side, scowling at him. I don't know much about the mill immunization at all, really. They never taught us that stuff. All they ever talked about was how bad and unethical it was. I was overcome by amazement. I felt like I was looking at a major piece of history. There were six of them total. They were like local celebrities. They were highly respected members of society. He paused until they weren't. What happened to him? I asked. Same thing that happened to everyone else, the crisis. I gasped. You're kidding. I suddenly felt bad for the poor guy who tried so hard to protect mankind, but ultimately killed it and him in the process. Wow, that's so sad, I said, genuinely feeling heartsick for the good doctor. Do you think the other founders' offices are here too? Zale shook his head. No. This must have been his private practice. The formula itself was created at a pharmaceutical company outside of town called BioRev. That place was kept on lockdown like a military base. There's no way he worked on the mill here. Zale stepped into the office, and I followed. For the most part, the room was well-preserved. Underneath the dust and layers of settled ash, we could see the desk, chairs, and even pictures still hanging from the walls. One picture frame in particular caught my eye because it was empty, just a black wood frame hung on the wall. Did you know that this is where his office was? I asked, finding it oddly coincidental that we'd stumbled across it. No, I didn't even think he was practicing medicine anymore in 2084. He would have probably been too old. 
I began shuffling through the paperwork. Everything read Dr. A. Ladin, M.D. Observing the name, I said, It's weird to me that Americans had two names. What do you mean? Well, I mean like Dr. Ladin. His first name was Alexander and his last name was Ladin. It's just thought to me that everyone used to have more than one name, I laughed. You don't have a last name? I looked up at him. No. Do you? I was surprised by the idea. No one in the ambit had gone by more than one name in years. Yeah. Farmer. My name is Zale Farmer. I laughed aloud accidentally. Farmer? Why are you laughing? He seemed slightly offended. Because that isn't your name. It's your occupation. I know that, but it's still my last name. How do you think last names are assigned? He snapped at me. I don't know, but I don't think that's how it was done originally, I answered, trying to stop snickering in front of him. Take Dr. Ladin, for example. What kind of an occupation is Ladin? Well, I don't think Ladin is an occupation, but isn't the doctor part indicative of his occupation? Zale seemed annoyed. He made a good point, though. Well, either way, it's still odd to me that they used to all have two names. The characters in my favorite book all had two names, too. I tried to stop fueling his annoyance with me by justifying the oddity. In the moments that passed, I thought about Isla's Bible and how the characters in there only had one name, God, Moses, David, and so on. Wait, so you don't have a last name, he asked again. Nope, I said. Not even an occupational last name like Brit Baby Doctor, he asked almost seriously. Nope, I giggled at the thought and then found myself relieved that it wasn't true. It would have been ridiculous to introduce myself as Brit Baby Doctor. <laughs> In the ambit, it was never an issue. Our population bookkeeper kept track of the names so there wouldn't be more than one person with the same name. I guess I never really thought of it as odd, I added. I finished looking through the papers on the desk and opened the drawers. There are quite a few books in the office about the mill immunization. I wished I could take them with me. I would have loved the opportunity to study the subject in order to better identify Chasen's fatal diagnosis. Zale thumbed through books and paperwork. Every now and then one of us would cough from the years of dust that filled our lungs and eyes, but for the most part we were silent in our search of the office. After finishing with the desk, I turned my attention to a bookcase on the far wall of the office. It was below a window that overlooked the area of the hospital where we'd spent too many uncomfortable moments searching for Buckley. Directly below us, I saw the backside of the same enormous monitor that had stalked us on the ground level of the building. Just as before, it paced back and forth, back and forth. It was sobering to see him still waiting there. I figured he was somewhere inside of the building trying to sniff us out. Zale, look at this, I pointed down to the monitor. Zale looked at me, scowling and searching my face for an indication of what I thought the monitor was doing. I was hoping he would know, because I had no idea. That's so odd, isn't it? I asked. I'm going to go get Fairchild. She might know why he's doing that. Zale disappeared out of the office door, returning a few minutes later with Buckley and Fairchild. I've never seen anything like that before, Fairchild said. I have, Buckley announced. All last night they did that. I told you you didn't have to have those guns in here. They won't come in. Zale, Fairchild, and I were silent, waiting for more of an explanation. Buckley didn't seem to pick up on that. And, Zale said, expressing his agitation, And so that's why I hid here. I don't know what else you want me to say. Buckley snapped back at Zale. Any idea why they would do that? I asked Fairchild. I have no idea, but I'll be making note of it for sure. Okay, so we can use that to our advantage. 
Let's take turns sleeping before we head back, Zale urged. Once night falls, let's get our butts back to the outside. As we all welcomed the idea of sleep, Fairchild and Buckley agreed to take the first watch while Zale and I slept. Zale and I made a spot on the floor of Dr. Ladden's office where we laid out our blankets. Then, laying side by side, without touching, we rested. The idea that monitors weren't choosing, for whatever reason, to enter the hospital put my nerves at ease. The comfort of being next to Zale gave me peace. I drifted off to sleep as soon as I closed my eyes. Chapter 13, Drip Drop Drip Drop Drip drop, drip drop, drip drop, awake. In my slumber, I could hear the slightest sounds as they echoed through the hallways of the sixth floor. Drip drop. When I opened my eyes, I strained my mind to decide if the sound was in my imagination or if it was real. I squinted as the blazing pink and yellow sunshine illuminated Dr. Ladden's office. I rubbed my eyes. Sitting up, I focused my senses on the silence that sat tranquil around us. Zale was next to me. A smile spread across my face as I noticed that he'd covered me with his blanket. I fought my smile back with a conscious effort only briefly, and then I released it once more to fully light up my face. No one was around to see it anyway, and I allowed myself a moment of selfish pleasure in the thoughtful gesture of Zale. Looking at him, he inhaled and exhaled softly as he slept hard and fast. His eyes fluttered and rolled underneath his eyelids, but besides that and his inflating and deflating chest, he didn't move. Drip drop. I was so focused on Zale's breathing that I'd almost forgotten what I was thinking about. The sound, that I was sure was real now, came again. It was faint yet pronounced. Even my imagination struggled to create its origin. Drip drop. I thought for a second about whether I should wake Zale, but I decided against it. He was sleeping peacefully, and I didn't feel the need for his protection from a simple sound down the corridor. I tiptoed as quietly as I could out of Dr. Ladden's office, pulling the door closed behind me. I was back in a small supply room and then into the hallway of floor six. It seemed that the further I ventured into the interior of the hospital, the darker it became. I was getting further from the natural light that glared through the windows on the exterior walls of the building. Standing in the hallway, even the shadows that fell across the length of it were a welcomed breath of fresh air compared to the pitch black of the hours before. A cool breeze blew through the hallways, catching me off guard for a moment. I inhaled it through my nose, noting the smells of smoke and dirt, but welcoming the fact that the air was moving and not stale. I continued down the hallway a bit in order to find Buckley and Fairchild, who were supposed to be somewhere keeping watch. I found them around the corner, both fast asleep. I fought back the urge to kick Buckley's leg, waking him violently. But Fairchild was next to him, with her head delicately lying on his shoulder. They sat in a perfect ray of sunshine that I'm sure had provided them with the warmth and temptation to rest their eyes. If Zale had been with me, he would not have resisted the urge to kick Buckley. But in a way, I found their position innocent and sweet as they tried to stay awake together. In so many ways, they were like children caught up in, the, in this craziness. A flash memory came of Isla and Chasen sleeping like warm little lumps under the covers of my bed, sweet and innocent, like Buckley and Fairchild. Jealousy filled me. I desired to once again have an ounce of that kind of innocence. My stomach dropped at the memory. I dismissed it immediately, trying to focus on the dripping sound which seemed closer from this part of the hallway. Buckley and Fairchild seemed unaffected by it, and so, like Zale, 
I decided to let them sleep. Before inspecting the sixth floor any further, I decided to arm myself with more than my handgun and last salt bomb. I needed something bigger, something like Buckley's shotgun, which balanced on his lap. I stepped closer to Buckley in an attempt to remove the gun from his sleepy death grip. I struggled for a moment, trying to unclutch his fingers from around the barrel. In the process of which, I twisted my body to yank the barrel from his hands, which accidentally released the side satchel off of my hip. The satchel swung down in full force and plowed Buckley right square in the face. I gasped, instantly feeling guilty, but I soon realized that he hadn't been roused at all by the blow. In fact, it worked in my favor because he released the barrel of the shotgun so that he could reach up to his nose, wiggle it, wipe it, and then doze back off to sleep. He never even opened his eyes, and he never realized I was a mere foot from his face. I struggled not to burst into laughter at the entire situation. Some watchman he turned out to be. I smacked the poor sucker dead in the face with my satchel and didn't even feel it. Oh, Buckley, it's a good thing it was me and not Zale that found you like that. Zale would have hit you so hard you would have felt it in your dreams. I inspected the shotgun, checking it for ammo, before continuing down the corridor toward the dripping sound. The further I got down the hall, the more natural light brightened it. At the end of the hall, there was a light that was almost overwhelming to my eyes, which had become adjusted to the shadowy halls. Given the intensity of the light, I assumed it must be a window. Drip, drop. The sound continued to intrigue me as I proceeded in the direction of the light. The breeze came a little stronger. It cooled my cheeks and pushed backwards the few curls that had fallen on my face. The closer I got to the light, the stronger the breeze became. Soon, the breeze was a wind, and its subtle touch on my face became a whipping current. The further I progressed, the harder it became for me to see because my eyelids were having trouble staying open in the force of the wind. My other senses were compensating for the handicapped ones. I smelled a stench that the wind carried, rotten fish and curdled milk. I noticed my feet were cold. I couldn't help my I couldn't keep my eyes open long enough to examine them, but I realized they were cold because they were wet. Curiosity nudged me and so I trudged on into the puddle. Is it raining? No, that isn't possible. There's so much sunlight there couldn't be a cloud in the sky. I was now on the opposite side of floor six from where my counterparts were. In a few strides, I would be at the turn in the hallway. There was not a window at the end of the hall, as I expected. As I rounded the corner, I finally understood the source for the light and the water and the wind. As I rounded the corner, the realization set in. I should have woken Zale up after all. <laughs> Chapter 14. Pins and Needles Halfway down the hall, a huge hole in the ceiling exposed the blue sky above it. It was almost the entire length of the hallway, and I was amazed that the structure was still standing in spite of it. The hole had left piles of blocks and rubble in the hallway. I was able to quickly hide behind one of the larger pieces as I studied the source from which the dripping sound originated. On the edge of the hole, in the ceiling above me, a long, pointed appendage dangled a tail. I figured that nearly all of the tail must have been hanging lazily there because of the tremendous length and girth of it. Unlike the scaly gray back of the monitor I tried to memorize back at the hammock tree, this one's tail was a dark plum color. It would have looked completely black, but I could see in the sunlight that it had a dark purple hue to it. The tail was shiny and reflected the sunlight so intensely that when it would sway back and forth, certain angles of sunlight would shine in my eyes and blind me temporarily, like a mirror in the sunlight does. 
back and forth, back and forth, the tail swayed. Drip, drop, drip, drop. Off of the very tip of the tail, large droplets of water slid down, one after another. Drip, drop. He must have been soaked from head to toe to have this much water flow off of him. I ducked as the movements of the appendage and the enormous body it was attached to shuffled its positioning on the roof above my head. I cursed under my breath, fearful that he may have sensed my presence. But seconds later, the tail went limp again, and the drip-dropping continued. At this point, I wasn't sure what to do next. Curiosity wanted me to step closer to get a better look at him, but my nerves urged me to run back to wake the others. We were wrong. The monitors were in the building, and I had to alert them of the imminent danger that rested above our heads. I was terrified, but I compromised with myself. I would not run back to the others for fear of alerting the monitor of our presence. If they are all sleeping quietly, then they're less likely to be discovered. Curiosity won me over. I thought about trying to get a vial of blood from the tail. It's not the cinder dragon's blood, but it might still be useful to us. I removed one of the glass vials from my satchel along with a thick needle that I hoped would be enough to penetrate the monitor's scales. The purplish-black tail swayed back and forth, back and forth. I used the sound it created to camouflage the sound of my approach. I stepped carefully, shaking from head to toe. When I got less than five feet from the tail, still hiding in the shadows, I stared intently at the appendage. I stepped closer. The tail swayed. Drip, drop, drip, drop. I was three feet from it now. I leaned in with heightened instincts and reflexes, preparing to dodge any movement it made. I slowed my breathing. I wondered if he would be able to smell my breath or feel it on its tail. I swallowed, waiting for the downswing toward me, where I would have the opportunity to test the sensitivity of the tail. It swung close to me. I let out a little breath onto it. Nothing happened. The tail swung away. It swung back, and this time I blew on it softly. Nothing happened. The tail swung away and back. This time when it approached, I touched it slightly with my finger. Nothing happened. It swung back. I touched it again, applying more pressure. The tail didn't seem to have any feeling at all. It was almost, I was almost comfortable with the idea of trying to draw blood from it now. If it moves, just hide. There are plenty of hiding spots. I had almost talked myself into it completely. I readied the needle in my trembling hand while I held the vial in the other. I took a deep breath as the tail swung away and then started its descent toward the needle. It was less than a foot away when the tail stopped mid-swing. It pointed straight to the floor, no motion whatsoever. I froze. I gulped the air in my lungs back down, not allowing even a breath to escape me. Again, the shuffling above my head came. The tail swished from side to side with the movement. In the readjustment, the monitor's tail flipped over, revealing the vulnerable underbelly. After a second, the swaying resumed. I exhaled the breath I'd held hostage. The beast must be lying in the sun, napping. As it approached, I saw a huge, jar, jagged scar on the pale underbelly of the tail. Not just one of them, but three. Two of the scars were lighter in color and harder to see, but one of the scars was still red and fresh. It had healed, but it was obviously recent. My mind viewed it in slow motion. I choked on the realization that hit me like a ton of bricks. My head screamed for me to run, but I couldn't. My body was frozen with fear. This wasn't just a monitor's tail. It was the tail of the cinder dragon. Drip, drop, 
The water droplets continued to fall, slower now. Drip, drop. I knew, in a matter of minutes, the sound that had lured me here and covered me as I approached the tail would cease, leaving me in silence with cinder. I had a small window of opportunity to get what we came for and get out, but I couldn't move. Move! Panic began to set in. Just like before, I couldn't make myself move. Like a horrible nightmare, I stood completely motionless. Zale! I thought of Zale. I remembered that thinking of him had rushed my mind with endorphins before. I needed that now to energize my body. I closed my eyes and thought of his face. I thought of the rhythm of his breathing as he slept next to me, the blanket he covered me with. I opened my eyes. I blinked. It's working. I remembered Zale holding me in the hammock. My skin tingled. I remembered his kiss on my, on my lips. My cheeks warmed. I felt the saliva in my mouth again. I took a deep breath. I thought of Zale warming me in the hammock. My fingers twitched, holding the needle and the vial at my side. I thought of Zale. The blood rushed my body, my energy restored, and I snapped out of the hold that the cinder dragon's presence had over me. With one quick motion, I stabbed the needle into the belly of her tail. She screeched, whipping her tail to the side. Her enormous, her enormous body shifted. She looked down at me through the hole in the ceiling with her big yellow eyes. I pulled the needle out of her tail, and in a flash, I was running for my life down the opposite hallway that I'd come from. I swung my body around the corner, catching myself in a sliding fall from my wet shoes. Then I ran into a laboratory room and closed the doors behind me like I expected that to stop her from finding me. I spotted a cupboard opposite, opposite of me in the room. I ran to it and folded my body inside, closing myself in behind the heavy metal doors. Inside the locker, I took the needle containing the blood and dropped the droplets of cinder's blood into the vial. I capped it and then tucked it safely inside the satchel pocket. Adrenaline coursed my veins. My body beckoned for air. I thought back over my actions and how stupid they seemed now that I was trapped in a metal closet with no feasible escape but back through the same doors I'd just come from. I should have thought this through more. I blamed my adrenaline for soaking up my common sense. Why did I think this was a good idea? Stupid. I sat waiting for Cinder to home in on my location. She couldn't be too far from me now. I waited for the consequences of my stupidity. But nothing happened. Why didn't she follow me? Maybe she didn't see which way I ran. Monitors have really bad vision. Maybe she couldn't fit in the hallway. Perhaps that's why the other monitor that paced on the ground hadn't followed. I contemplated many theories. But the last one was not only my worst-case scenario. It was also probably the most probable one. What if she went looking for me and found Zale, Fairchild, and Buckley instead? What if they're still sleeping? I lunged forward at the thought of it, abandoning my hiding spot and cautiously darting across the lab toward the hallway. Before opening the door, I flipped the shotgun around from my back to my front and pumped it. I opened the door to the lab and stepped into the hallway. The barrel of Buckley's handgun found my forehead. Upon recognizing me, he lowered his gun. He was scouting out the hallway. Behind him, Fairchild tiptoed, and behind her, Zale brought up the rear, scanning the walls carefully. Buckley scowled at me. He gestured to the shotgun in my hands and then pointed to himself. I think he was actually taking time to express his frustration about me taking his gun from him while he slept. I was thankful that silence was of the utmost importance in this moment, because otherwise I'm sure I would have gotten an earful from Buckley about his stupid gun. Instead, he tried to intimidate me with angry gestures. I removed the shotgun from around my torso and handed it to him. I then made a gesture of my own to let him know how much I didn't care that he was upset. 
He handed me his handgun and then nudged me to get behind him. I fell into line with Fairchild in front of Zale. Once Zale turned to notice me in front of him, he too did his best to express how displeased he was with me without speaking. I assumed it was because I'd gone off by myself and worried him. Zale's angry eyes didn't intimidate me either, partly because venturing off by myself had paid off, but also because, as I smiled at him, his angry eyes softened and turned to relief. The four of us, in single file, stepped lightly in the direction of floor six that we had yet to explore. There weren't any doctor's offices with chairs and desks or medical supply rooms. This corner of floor six was entirely unusual compared to the rest of the hospital. At one point, we passed through two solid heavy metal doors which had serious dents and were hanging off of their hinges. The first set of doors had a sign bolted to it that read, Authorized Personnel Only. Beyond the doors, we could only see darkness. There weren't any windows. I could barely make out the metal tables and shelves that lined the room. Some shelves leaned up against the wall while others were toppled over on the floor. The only light in the entire room was that which followed us in. Once inside, roughly half of the room became visible to us. The furthest points were pitching black. There was no telling what could be lurking in the shadows. What is this? I whispered. Fairchild was the only one I expected to answer, but she didn't. She only shook her head as she looked around at the tall ceilings and dark walls. A gust of hot, humid air came from the other side of the room. We couldn't see what caused it. The musky stench of the air made my stomach turn. Again, a puff of air came at us, a hot, humid musk. Like a bull exhaling puffs of furious air, Cinder was there in the shadows, lying and waiting for us. Buckley yelped, Holy! He cursed. He lifted his gun and took aim at Cinder. No! Fairchild screamed at him and grabbed his arms. Don't shoot her! Zale grabbed my hands as I started to step toward Buckley and Fairchild. I looked at him, and he gave me a stern look, telling me to stay where I was. I obeyed. Cinder, from beneath the shadows, ducked her head out into view. First, her long, orange tongue slithered out. Then she revealed her flaring nostrils on the top of her long, narrow face. Her scales on her muzzle were blackish-purple, like the rest of her body, and they heaved in and out with her breath. She puffed at us anxiously like a bull, and again the hot, humid stench touched our faces and turned our stomachs. Cinder's yellow eyes glowed from the shadow at us. I could tell she was lying, like a cat on her side. I focused my eyes to the rest of her body, trying to make out the outline of her torso, legs, and enormous tail. Fairchild gently touched the barrel of Buckley's gun and forced it down. It's okay. We aren't going to hurt you. Fairchild spoke to Cinder like a toddler hiding in the corner. What? Like heck we ain't, Buckley whispered indignantly. Cinder's eyes flared and again she puffed hot air, this time directing it at Buckley. Buckley jumped a little and then stepped back a few steps. He maintained eye contact with her as he retreated slowly. In the process, Buckley bumped into Zale, who didn't budge. Buckley grunted. Zale stood still and firm like a statue, and when Buckley turned to see what he'd run into, Zale just stared at him impatiently. Buckley casually stepped behind Zale so as to not look as scared as he probably was. What's she doing? Zale asked me, but I had no idea. Fairchild seemed to be the bravest of us all, like she knew something we didn't. She slowly approached Cinder, talking to her lovingly. Are you hurt, girl? Fairchild asked Cinder as though Cinder would answer. 
Fairchild extended her arm out in front of her as she closed in on Cinder's head. Her gigantic jaws could surely kill Fairchild in an instant, but as she approached, Cinder remained calm and silent. See that, Buckley? Zale teased. She's got more guts than you. Buckley groaned. I remembered the flashlight in my satchel and reached in to find it. After fumbling for a second, I pulled it out and flipped it on. The batteries were fading from all the use, but it still produced enough dim light to see with. I stepped closer to Fairchild and Cinder, focusing the ball of light on Cinder's face. I can't believe this, Fairchild said aloud to us. She's so incredible. I used my ball of light to travel down Cinder's body, examining it for wounds that Fairchild speculated she had. I hadn't told them about my success in drawing her blood, and I wondered if she was hurt because of me. But that wasn't it at all. Fairchild, back up, I said in the sternest tone I could. What? Why? Fairchild asked. Back up, I repeated to emphasize my seriousness. Just as Fairchild turned to question me again, Cinder lunged at her. By the time Fairchild turned to see, Cinder's mammoth jaws were open and coming toward her. There was nothing she could do to move fast enough. She didn't even scream or squeal. She didn't have time. And like a large cat, Cinder's massive gaping mouth hissed at Fairchild. Fairchild stumbled backward, trying to get out of her way of the hot steam that showered her. She scurried like a crab, trying to get as far away from Cinder as she could. She joined Buckley behind Zale. She was wet with the humid air that Cinder spewed on her. She was red with embarrassment for not listening to my warning and shaking from the encounter. Cinder followed Fairchild with her eyes, and then the Cinder Dragon lowered herself once more and slid back into the shadows. She returned to her resting place. What was that all about? Zale asked. That, I used the flashlight to show them underneath Cinder's hind leg lay three large green eggs. This is her nest. That's where we're stopping. <laughs>